I um, am coming from Detroit, right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, Detroit is uh, not as warm as Atlanta. When I got here, it was 90 degrees, and I said, Lord, thank you for the heat. <laughs> um, but that's, I, I, I know this sounds weird, but um, even if it's 85, 90 degrees in Detroit, I still hide in the den where the heater works because I'm always cold for some reason or another. But um, it's a blessing to see you, and I thank God for you all that have prayed for me. Uh, so we won't waste time. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. And I, I have a, a small bit of uh, work to do on the way. Um, as you know, the book of Colossians is a twin epistle. It is the sister book to the book of Ephesians. And its job, Paul had never been to the, the little town of Colossae. The word Colossae means monstrous. That's where we get the word Colosseum from. And um, he had never been there. So uh, all the work that he's doing in this book is one that is spiritual in its intent and its content. He's trying to uh, give the background information to the body of Christ. Uh, I'm sure when Paul was writing the book of Colossians, he didn't know that it would survive him by 2,000 years. Uh, he was just writing to Colossians, to the people of Colossians, and uh, telling them the intimate details of our salvation. But the book of Colossians, uh, to bring it up to date, and you can jot this down real quick, chapter one is the truth about the Christ. And I don't have time to go into depth with that. But um, this, it's the truth about the Christ. And chapter two is the truth about the cults. About the cults. And let me tell you something. If you get to know the book of Colossians, no Mormon would dare challenge you. Or Jehovah Witness for that matter. And then chapter three is the truth about the Christian. The truth about the Christians. And chapter four is the truth about the church. It's the truth about the church. Uh, in our reading was read, Brother Travis read in our reading, um, chapter 1, verse 21, uh, 24 through 2, 5. And um, that's quite a bit of a meat that I don't have time to, to cover it because I want you to be home before 5 o'clock. So um, I'm reading out the authorized version, the King James Version. It's the one that Jesus said was fine. So um, uh, stick with me. Pardon all the these and thous and and uh, thines in the book. Um, turn your attention to uh, verse 24, and we'll read just down to verse 27, then we'll make our prayer. Who then, who now rejoice in my sufferings uh, for you and fill up that which is behind, uh, which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church. Whereof I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which had been hidden from the ages, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery according to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. We thank you, great King, for this time we have together. We pray that you would take your word, apply it to our hearts, and cause us to live holy and victorious thereby, looking for your soon return. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, a word is used, it's the word, Greek word, mysterion, which means mystery, twice in the uh, passage I just read. And uh, know for those of you who are Bible students that there are, in, at least in the writings of Paul, there are seven mysteries of Christ. Now, I apologize for my alliteration. Uh, that's not the way Paul said it, but I will I tried to alliterate it to make it more understandable, and I'm going to give them to you real quickly. In, uh, in uh, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at uh, what he says real quick, just a verse there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and look what he says, starting at verse number 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect which yet, uh, yet not the wisdom of this world nor the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom of God, which God have before the world, have ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the, the princes of this world knew, for they have known that they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. God kept back from Satan. He kept back from Satan exactly what the role of Christ was. Satan thought he had performed a coup d'etat. He thought that he was now king of the world, but Jesus laid a bear trap for him that he could never get out of. And if the princes of this world, the principalities and powers of this world, had they ever known what was actually going on, what Jesus was accomplishing, they would never crucify the Lord of glory. See, God is keeping back from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, seven great mysteries, at least seven great mysteries of what he was actually doing. And here in this passage, we see the infernal revolution that was happening on the earth. God was keeping the powers of hell. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And no matter what, there's nothing you can do about it now. You are secure in Christ. Amen. You are secure in Christ. A kid uh, asked me once at a college I spoke at, Years ago, he said, can I lose my salvation? I said, what part of everlasting don't you understand? And whosoever believeth in him shall have eternal life. All right? God does not have a refund department. God believes in doing something once. Once. Then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. And look what it says. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall all be changed. And here we have the mystery of the instant return of Christ. The instant return of Christ. Now, I have to admit, every generation of the church has looked forward as though his coming was coming the next day. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. We call that the blessed hope, the blessed hope. We're on the cusp of eternity, and God does not have a watch. God does not set himself, well, I've got to be there in 20 minutes. No, he has a time period that is set in eternity, and only he knows it. But we believe in the instant return of Christ. Wait a minute, Dwight. If we believe in the instant return of Christ, how can we believe in that? And he's not going to come right away. He may not come right away. The instant return of Christ is saying that he's going to happen in an instant. Uh, 
We don't believe in the immediate return of Christ because if he, he was come immediately, he would have came thousands of years ago. But we believe in the instant return of Christ. I was in Bermuda and um, my heart was breaking for all the young people that were doing nothing. And so uh, cycles are real big there, not cars, but cycles are real big there. And oddly enough, if you were to poll the young people, many of them get up at four in the afternoon. They get up at four in the afternoon. That means they don't have jobs. Most of them are wealthy anyway. And uh, then they start hanging out with each other. And at late at night, from 12 to about four in the morning, you can go to a cycle club, because there's several cycle clubs on the island, and you'll see the young people getting drunk and getting high and, and doing all kinds of illicit things. And I went there just to share the gospel. I just felt compelled to share the gospel with these young people. Then I, was, I came one night, and one young man, I had gotten in the crowd, and they were listening to me. And a young man came to me and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get your attention. Now, when my grandmother's alive, her mother told her, girl, live right because Jesus is coming back any minute. And then when my mother's alive, my grandmother said, girl, live right because Jesus is coming any minute. And then when I was a kid, my mother said to me, live right because Jesus is coming any minute. If Jesus was coming any minute, how come he hasn't come here by now? And all across it, yeah, yeah, what is it? What is it? Same thing happened to me. And I got the crowd quiet and I said, uh, come here, stupid. And uh, he said, why you call me stupid? I said, because obviously you study for your blood test, right? Um, uh, there's a one simple reason why Jesus hasn't come back. And he said, why? I said, your soul. Jesus could see through the tunnel of eternity uh, and all the time that the world has, and there's a little word, five little words, called grace. And he saw you, and he loved you too. And even though you may not accept him, he wants to give you a chance. See, every person in hell, every person destined for the lake of fire, God loves them, and he wants to give you a chance. He sees in you someone who needs to hear the gospel. It's still your choice, but you need to hear the gospel. I said, so what you are experiencing is God's grace, not God's lateness, but God's grace. Amen. What I see here is a mystery that in a moment, in a twinkling of a eye, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And that's the way I live. I live my life that way. I live my life like I will go with him at any moment. You know, the, the, the point is, the Bible says... Um, He's going to conquer death in the grave, and he's going to bring home all of his saints, and I know he's coming back for me. I have that assurance. I live with that assurance. Please, saints, live your life as though Jesus were coming back in the next hour. Uh, someone, I asked a group of young people, Pastor Ryan, I asked a group of young people uh, down in Alabama, how many of y'all believe Jesus is coming back in the next hour, the next 60 minutes? And no one raised their hand. I said, I'm ashamed of you. I live my life that Jesus is coming in the next 60 minutes. And one old man said, why? I said, because he said, I'm coming in the hour that you think not. Yes, yes, yes. That means if you don't believe he's coming in an hour and you don't think it, he just might come. And how many are ready? And everybody dropped their heads. I said, yeah, I thought so. Okay, let's turn to our next one. So that was the intimate, the instant return of Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. 
chapter 3, verse 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world have been hid in God who created all things in Christ Jesus to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. By the way, um, Ephesians is the only book that Paul uses that phrase like he does. The heavenly places. Heavenly places. Eporenos. Eporenos. Um, here we see the, the um, internal relationship of Christ. Where Christ is talking about us. And notice what the scripture says. He said, uh, to the intent that the principalities and powers would know. They, would, they still don't have any idea. They have no idea. Satan is doing what he's doing, acting the way he's acting. He has no idea what he's in, what's in store for him. And by the way, just let me say this. Everything Satan says is a lie. It doesn't, it's never going to be true. It's never going to work out. No matter what he offers you, it is a lie. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. Don't believe him. Don't believe him. I had a young man that I was trying to... Uh, Minister to, he was a young man whose father had done very bad things to him. And I had to go away and do a, a set of travels. I couldn't see him for about three months. And I got home late one night about three in the morning and my, my phone rang and I answered the phone. And his mother, whom the courts uh, awarded custody to his father, his custody to the, his father, he's 14 years old, and simply because of this, the judge asked his mother, do you believe in the jail principles of uh, disciplining your child? She said, yes, I think it's Bible. He said, custody your order to the father. Father was a drug addict. He was a known abuser of mankind, but they awarded him that because he believed, she believed that her son should be disciplined. And so uh, his father, the first day he was with him, he gave him a 45 and said, some ugly streets out there, you need to protect yourself. And two days later, the boy shot himself in the head. And I was called, his mother called me from Atlanta. She was from this area. A uh, long distance said, I heard that Javon hurt himself. Would you go to the hospital? The hospital knows you're coming. And so I got dressed and I drove to the hospital in Detroit. And the doctor waited for me. He said, you Reverend Knight? I said, yes. He said, okay. He said, uh, this is where he is. And I went back. He was on life support. Half of his head was gone. And uh, he was on a respirator, and his name was Javon. And I said, Javon, I said, why have you believed the lie of Satan that death is better than life? Why have you believed the lie that death is worth, worth, uh, worse than life, better than life? And he gasped one time and sat up a little bit in the bed, and then he died. And his head oozed out all the blood and fluid on my suit. And um, I called his mother and told her that he had passed away. And as I was walking out of the emergency room, the father, still drunk, said, it's your fault. It's your fault my son took his life. It's your fault. He was a man who had rented out his son when he was two years old to some wicked and vile men to have pedophilic desires with him. 
one day Jesus is going to set all that thing, call this thing right. Satan and his devices does not care. He does not care. Just know this, that everything, all of Satan's devices are wicked at their core. They don't start out uh, good and turn evil. They're all wicked. I would suggest that you get a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil, and you will see uh, things that start out looking really good and how they turn out to be just the wicked that Satan wanted them to be. Now turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5, verse 32. And of course, you know this is the passage that talks about marriage. But look at what it says. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is the intimate romance of Christ, the mystery of the intimate romance of Christ. Christ is my lover. He is my lover. He loves my soul. He's concerned about every part of me. I was a young man that uh, his father left him when he was six months old and went on to have uh, 18 other children. It was 21 children he had and he didn't take care of one of them. And I was a, a kid that was raised by his mother and early in my life I accepted Christ as my savior and I've never felt like I was alone. I was just telling Jivin and Tony last week that I have never in my life had a bad day or a depressed day. Why not Dwight? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. He loves me. I said that once in, on the uh, campus of Clemson University. A young lady said she was a student there. She said, loves you? Someone loves you? I said, yes, honey, Jesus loves you. He loves me? He doesn't know my past. Yes, he does. And it's because of your past, he loves you. He said, why did he make me so ugly? I said, no, honey. You have to understand. The Bible says he beautifies the meek with salvation. He made beautiful and made you out of it. You have to see your life through his eyes, not through your eyes. She said, I'll never get anybody. I'll be lonely all my life. Well, I officiated at her wedding two years later. And her husband adores her. It's something to be loved by Christ. It's something to know it supremely. I worked for 14 years at Blue Cross Blue Shield, and I said that to a young, young man. He said, Jesus loves you? I said, yeah, he loves me. He said, loves you? He said, I grew up Catholic. They never said that Jesus loved you. I said, Jesus loves me. He loved me so much that he died on a cross for me. He loves me. And you read this passage, you talk about the intimate romance that Jesus has with the church and with the Christian. By the way, guys, there are three passages of scripture, three verses of, in the scripture with a woman's duty to her husband. Three. There are 17 verses that talk about the duty of the man to the wife. And my wife reminds me of all of them. All right, ladies, if you want to list, email me, dwight.night at gmail, and I'll send them to you. Hold your husband to the fire. And I say, but honey, I, I, do it, Dwight. Remember, you're supposed to love me. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible says that wives are supposed to love their husband. Okay? But over and over again, it talks about a husband loving his wife. All right? So, ladies, you got the one up on us. So, uh, don't let him live it down. Okay. Then turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All the T's in the Bible are together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Now look what it says in verse number seven. This is a passage about the Antichrist. It says, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he that now left will let. And uh, the word let there is he who restrains will restrain. And this we have the iniquitous rejection of Christ. The world has finally said to Christ, this is right there in verse number nine and 10, that um, we don't want you. We don't, we don't want you. We don't want you. You know, there's been an 80% increase in the last 10 years of witches and Satan worshipers in the United States. Satan is on the rise. The world is looking for a feel-good religion, and there is one. Satan is offering the world exactly one it wants. In this passage, we see the assurance of the saints, and we see the Antichrist is seen, then we see the appeal of Satan, and then we see the anger of the Savior. All that happens in verses 1 through 10. And I believe that verse number 10 tells us that if you heard the gospel now, during the period of grace, that after the church is wrapped out, you cannot receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I think the passage reveals that. And then finally, the passage we're going to look at, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among you Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope glory. What whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I think that the whole Bible is inspired by God, and different people have favorite verses and favorite passages, that sort of thing. But there are certain phrases that demand that we pay attention to. And one of those phrases is found in verse number 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. One of the things that Paul wants the Church of Colossae to understand is you're not just someone who God showed a little favor on. It's not because he likes you so much. He is in you. The Bible says in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit shall come with you and be with you and also in you. In you. You see, you have to understand something. We are not all God's children. We're all God's creation. Every person on the earth, everything that's on the earth is God's creation. But you are blood watched called a child of God because you've accepted Christ as your savior. You're a child of God that way. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He doesn't have nieces and nephews. He doesn't have any cousins. He has children. And it takes a deliberate act to accept him as savior, to be his. And this scripture tells us the Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the word hope there is not wishful thinking, but it's an absolute certainty that one day Christ is going to fulfill all his truth in you. Now, in eternity, uh, as God sees it, that's, those things are already true, and he's expecting us to live that way. But we will see it. We will see it when he comes to get the church, when the, the veil is taken away from our, our eyes, as the Bible talks about, because we see through our glass darkly. You think you see the world as perfect as it is? Wow. If you saw what actually the world looks like, the spirit world, it would trip you out. It would trip you out. It's amazing. And notice what it says in verse number 27. Five points. The intimate indwelling role of Christ. It says, we whom we preach. Let me ask you this question. 
Um, how many times have you been out doing your business, shopping, walking, going to work, whatever, and someone stopped you and shared with you the gospel? In your life, think back in your life. How many times has that happened? And if you're like most people, very few, if any. No one has stopped you and told you the glorious story of Jesus Christ. Well, my question for you is simple. How many times have you stopped someone and told them the glorious story of Jesus Christ? Do you really believe it? Whom we preach. Whom we preach. The word there is caruso. That means we preach the everlasting truth. We're supposed to be evangelists talking about Jesus. Talking about Jesus. Woe unto us that we preach not the gospel. Woe unto us. I was on a, a plane with some of my disciples um, coming back from Bermuda and we were all scattered among the plane and uh, I had two young ladies with me, three young ladies with me. And um, oddly enough, two of them sat next to men who were reading the same book. And the book was Left Behind. And they got in a conversation with the young men. And uh, each one of the young men said, I know I'm going to be left behind. So not hearing each other, the girl said, you don't have to be. You can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you can accept him. Well, as things would go, one man said, I can accept Christ. I don't have to be left behind. She said, no, you don't have to be left behind. And right there at 37,000 feet, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. The other young man says, wait a minute. I know eternity is long, but I'm too busy having fun in my life. I guess I'll just be left behind. It's not my job to save people. It's not my job to commit people to heaven or condemn people to hell. It is my job to tell them to go into all the world and tell them. What's amazing to me is a couple of weeks after I was out of the hospital, I decided, well, I'm gonna try to walk without my cane. I'm just gonna go outside and walk down the walkway. And I tried to walk and I fell down. And about eight doors opened in my, on my block. And all these ladies came out and said, are you all right, are you all right? I said, yeah, I, I'm fine. They said, we're not gonna help you because we believe that you'll learn from your mistakes. I said, well, thank you, but we've been praying for you. And all these people were praying for me who loved the Lord and knew that I was a minister. I didn't even know them, but they knew me. People are watching you. People are, um, and each one of them came by in the house and prayed and, and dropped off a note or passes a scripture. And they told me that they're praying for me. They care about me. Likewise, people ought to know who you represent. People need to watch your life. People need to know who you are in the neighborhood, around you, on your job. When a young man asked me on my job, he says, um, he was a technician, he says, oh, well, uh, I know you have to sit here and watch me as I do this. He said, but I know you to be a man of faith. I said, how do you know that? I've never seen you before in my life. He said, we talk about you. Who's the we? Guys among us. We watched your life for seven years, just waiting for you to slip up, and you haven't. So I'm interested in it in this Jesus you're talking about. People are watching you. They're watching you. You live your life for the opportunity to share Jesus Christ with you. And I shared Jesus Christ with him. 
And I told him that it was a Christ to have and to enjoy and a hell to shun. And he said, well, I think about it. I said, that might be too late. I said, Jesus may not come back in the next day or two, but you might die in the next day or two. I said, it's guaranteed you're going to die. He said, I don't like to think about it. I said, whether you want to think about it or not, you're still going to die. Do something about it as soon as you can. We preach to every man. We preach to every man. I was on a plane to Houston, and a young man, I was, I, uh, oddly enough, I ended up sitting next to one of my baseball heroes, a man who uh, played for the Detroit Tigers, and um, he said, can I talk to him? I said, sure, and he shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just grinned, and he said, would you like to accept Christ as your Savior? I said, you're too late. He says, it's never too late, son. I said, no, I accepted Christ and when I was four years old. I said, I know Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. And he said, you love the Lord? He said, man. And he started giving me all this paraphernalia about his testimony and how he got saved. I said, it's wonderful. I love to tell the story. I love to hear the story of the blessing of Jesus Christ. I love to hear it. And then it says, we warn every man. We prevent every man. We prevent every man. You know, years ago, you used to see those people with those signs saying, repent because Jesus is coming. You don't see much of that anymore. But it's still true. It's still true. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. There are people who think that uh, the Bible is anodated and not a place and, and it's um, useless for today. But I was watching a program called In Search Of. And the archaeologist says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. He said, but I've spent all my life trying to disprove the Bible. But every time I go to disprove it, I found it to be true. When I was in Israel two years ago, the uh, guide that we had was an excellent guide. He knew the, uh, the biblical sites very well. And he says, Mr. Knight, I looked you up on the Internet and I got all your books. I ordered all your books. He said, I believe it up here. Please help me get it down here. He said, I have a doctorate in biblical studies, but I don't know God as my savior. I said, that's the worst kind of person to be. In hell, knowing full well that you were headed right all along, but you didn't accept it. I said, accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Accept him. He said, why should I accept him? I said, Jesus didn't just die for me. He died for you. God so loved the world. The world. He loves you. He purchased the whole earth just to get you out of it. Won't you accept him as Savior? I said, there's a judgment to come. We warn every man. We prevent them. We get in the way. Several years ago, um, a young man was leaving very early to uh, get to his job. He was going across the Pontchartrain Bridge, and it was 5 o'clock in the morning, and it was a, a foggy day, and as he was going across that 22-mile bridge, he was hurrying and scurrying along his way, and uh, he would enter a fog bank, and then he would be in a clearing in her phone making it clear. And then he saw something up ahead about a mile away. He saw a person running toward him, waving his arms and screaming. And he said, uh, oh, this guy's going to stop me. I'll be late for work. I'm not going to stop for him. He said he must have had a breakdown in his car. And he said, I'll just change lanes. So he changed lanes and the man changed lanes. He said, no, I, I'm not going to be late for work. If he gets hit, hit he gets hit. And uh, as he got close to the man, he slammed on his brakes and turned his car, and the man jumped on his windshield, yelling and screaming. He says, what is it? What is wrong with you? He said, sir, you don't understand. That in the fog, the next fog bank, 
the bridge is out. The bridge is out. People are dying. And the man said, what? And he started running toward the fog bank. And he says, get on your hands and knees. And they crawled into the fog bank. And about 10 feet in the fog bank, there's been a 20-foot swath of road that was missing from the bridge. And down there were cars and school buses and kids and people clamoring in the back of the windows who were drowning from the water. And he said, it's nothing we can do. They're dead. They're gone. But we can warn the people who are coming. And the man got up and wheeled and ran toward the road. And he began to do just as the man had done to him. He began to warn others that the bridge is out. Listen, the bridge is out. And all your wishful thinking, it won't make it better. The bridge is out. Warn people that the bridge is out. There's an eternity out there. There's an eternity out there. So we warn every man. Then also we do something next that very few real God people, God's people will do. It says we don't only teach every man and prevent every man. Um, I'm sorry, we teach every man in all wisdom. We disciple. We prepare. Love someone who is younger in the faith, who does not have their, their spiritual legs together. Love them and hold them. Teach them the word of God. Let them look at your life. Look at your life. Nobody's trying to say that you have to be perfect. But let them see what godly live, living is. Let them see what godly truth is. It bothers me that Christians don't disciple like they used to. And when I, like I said, I was raised without my father. But in my church, I had nine men arguing over me every week. I want to spend time with them. No, I want to spend time with them. And they loved me and they taught me the word of God. I learned Greek, Greek and Hebrew in my church before I was 15. Men who loved the word and loved his people. Disciple, disciple. That's one thing that's really important. Women discipling men, and I'm sorry, discipling women, men discipling men. Teaching them the road that you have been on and how God answers prayer. The young man said to me, he said, I've got to be discipled by you. I said, why? He said, because I've got to know. I've got to know how to live right. My father's a pastor. He's a pastor of our church. But I want to live right. I don't want to just know what to say back to people. I want to live it for myself. So the next five years, I discipled him. And he had a friend, a best friend, whose name was Rod Dewberry. And he said, can my friend Rod come? Well, he's here now. And Rod became the best student I ever had. I had I've discipled well over close to 400 young men. And Rod was the best student I had. And he just learned the word of God, learned how to live the life of Christ. That's why we disciple. We replicate, reproduce ourselves. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. I have the glory of sharing with other young men what was shared by the Apostle Paul. And you do too. In everyone's life, we need a Paul, we need a Timothy, and we need a Barnabas. Someone who's discipling us, someone who we are discipling, and someone who we are accountable to. And in our lives, we all need an Elizabeth, we all need a Ruth, and we all need a uh, Mary to walk alongside of us, share our life with. We need to disciple. And then also, it looks as says. It says this, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Present every man. You know what that means? 
we have to teach them the value of worship, the value of worship. Now, I am, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but I am brethren. And brethren are the most boring people on the planet Earth. Um, uh, how many brethren elders does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Anyway, and uh, I've been brethren all my life. All my life I've been brethren. But I'll tell you something. I dance. I dance. Because the Lord has made me glad. I may not dance in the world. I may not do it very well. But I praise him. I worship him. I lift him up. I act a fool. My dog doesn't know what to think of me. I praise him. When my wife and I got married, she says, you never told me you dance. I said, so what? You can't get divorced anyway. And I danced. I dance. I dance. I just shout and praise him because he's worthy. He's worthy. There's nobody in the world like Jesus. Nobody in the world like Jesus. Two times, a plane, I got, I was late or not allowed on a plane. And that plane went on a crash and killed all the people on board. So I dance. I feel sorry for the people, but I dance. I worship him. I bless him. I bless his name. And you ought to too. The Bible tells us in Psalm 150, praise him in the temple and the dance. Dance. You ought to get yourself uncomfortable for Jesus' sake. We have to teach the world to worship. Worship him. Love him and lift him up. Then it says this. Present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? The world ought to see us and get a chance to look at our lives and affirm that what we're saying is true. You should be early on your job. You should do your job like nobody else can do it. Your neighborhood, they should award you uh, prizes for how clean your house is. The testimony of your walk should be that you are something special. You're a king's kid. Live like it. Live like it. You belong to the most important person in the universe. Live like it. Men, you should treat your wives like queens that they are. They're the daughters of the king. I say that the the most perfect marriage is not a wife who obeys, obeys her husband, but a husband who adores his wife. Adores his wife. And let me tell you something. I've never had to counsel a couple whose husband adored his wife in my life. Man's always saying, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I need. No. Worship her. Give her the time that she deserves. Give her the affection she deserves. I told my wife when she moved from uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts to Detroit, I said, you're leaving your home, your family, your name, your world, your existence, your career to marry me. And I said, I, I want to make it my goal that you'll never have any regrets. Never have any regrets. When I had a stroke in May of last year, my wife told her job. She uh, works a couple of hours a week as a nurse. She told her job, um, I have to quit. And they said, why? Because I have to take care of my husband. And my wife was by my side every moment of the day for five weeks. And the nurses said, you really got a wonderful wife. You must be a great husband. And I said, no, I have a great God who gave me a great wife. No man deserves his wife. No man deserves his wife. 
No man deserves his wife. I thank God for her. In this passage of scripture, we see what the intimate relationship Christ wants to have with you. He wants to have with you and make it stand out to the world. The indwelling role of Christ is one of the most important things that happened. Then the last mystery is the one that Jehovah Witnesses hate. They hate it so much they took it out of their Bible. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, look at that one. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up in glory. That's the last statement we need to make. The indwelling role of Christ by the incarnate relationship of Christ, the wonder of who he is. Has your breath got tired of your worship to God? Have you expended yourself on who he is? Have you given the world your last testament of who Christ is in the world and what he is for the lost and dying of the universe. I was on my way to South Korea seven years, several years ago, and um, I uh, was walking through the submarine. My wife and uh, Lear had gone to North Korea to uh, see what it was to be arrested to be a Christian. And um, I stayed in South Korea because I didn't want to be arrested. And uh, while I was there, I saw a young man in a Korean military uniform, and on his breast, he had a cross. And I said, uh, oh, you uh, a Protestant? He said, no, I'm a Christian. I said, a Christian? He said, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, they give you that when you're a Christian? He said, no, sir, you have to earn it. You have to prove whatever faith it is that you deserve to represent it. And I represent Christ. I represent Christ. He said, I'm not loyal so much to the country of South Korea, but I'm loyal to a higher king. And everybody knows who it is, it's Jesus Christ. He said, uh, you should come here and speak to young people about Jesus Christ. I said, I might have to. I stayed there for three weeks and every young person that knew Christ while I was there told me over and over again, I live for Christ and I want to serve him with my life. And that's what our goal is. Our goal is to serve him with our life. Please be found, be found worshiping him and loving him and regarding him to the world. The world is lost. The world is lost. The world is looking for an answer. And I have the answer. I'm absolutely assured of the fact that Jesus is who he said it was and who he said it was. I would ask you to take this passage of scripture and look at it closely. There's so much detail there and so much to learn from there. In chapter two, you'll see um, some of the most important verses in the Bible are found in that passage. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Get to know that. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, that were contrary to us, took him, taking them out of his way and nailing him, them to his cross, having spoiled principalities and powers, triumphing over them and made a show of them openly. All these verses are very important to us. You ought to know the word of God and get into it so you can recite it hand over hand. Know God and know his word. 
There's no place in the Bible that you have a need to be ashamed, nor for yourself. Let's pray. We thank you, great God, for the time we spend in your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we live our lives, that we'll have a testimony of the truth that only comes from you. The truth that is found only in the scripture. The truth that's found in trusting you and knowing you. God, we pray that as your son is revealed to us, that we'll accurately represent him and live for him as our prayer. In Jesus' name.